0: Good to have you all here on our uh, pre-Valentine Sunday, so a preemptive uh, Happy Valentine's Day to you. Is this on? You guys here? All right. Okay. Sweet. Glad to hear. So one of the joys about being part of the family of God and uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord is that we all get to share in our joys, we get to share in one another's sorrows, and we also get to share in one another's sicknesses, all right? So uh, I am sharing in your germs now that one of you have uh, undoubtedly, I'm going to blame you, uh, given to me. Uh, I contracted it on Thursday and I'm uh, maybe feeling about 90% now. Um, So whether that impacts the length of the sermon or not uh, is to be determined. Some of you are praying, please, please, yes, and others are saying, no, no. So uh, we'll see how the Spirit leads. We are in Exodus chapter 13, a very uh, seemingly peculiar passage to preach from. On a Sunday morning, many would probably skip over this for the good stuff, right? Let's let's skip over this kind of boring section about unleavened bread and this whole first fruit thing or firstborn thing. Let's let's go to the crossing of the Red Sea. That's exciting. Uh, well, we will get there, and, and I think we'll find that this is very has more than enough excitement for us today. If you're just joining us, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, we've been walking through Exodus. And we have uh, walked through all ten plagues or, or strokes of Egypt that God just literally just decimated by himself, the, the most powerful nation, one of the most powerful nations in the world at the time. This is Egypt. This is the Egypt of the pyramids and, and all these wonders that we see today even. And yet God just laid waste to it through ten plagues. Last week we finished the final plague, the Passover and we said the Passover is the Old Testament equivalent to what? To the crucifixion and resurrection. It was the defining moment for Israel. This is God calling them out of Egypt, Him staking His claim on His people and defining them forevermore. And what we have before us, this passage now and some other portions, is God wanting them to remember that defining act for all time, for the remainder of their history. Uh, And in it, I think we'll see the Lord grants us some very applicable directives for our life. So uh, I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. Let's, Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are your servants this morning. We recognize that for all in Christ, you have set us free from our old master's. And Lord, we want to take time to recognize that our prior condition was one of bitter and harsh slavery underneath sin. That sin is a brutal taskmaster. Always every false idol says more bricks and less straw. But you, Lord, you are a God who is gracious and kind and merciful with your servants you not only command us what to do, but you supply what you command. And so we thank you and praise you. And I ask now as we meditate on your word that you would fill us with your spirit. And that just as you did then, that you would lead us through, uh, through Christ by your spirit into the wilderness of this world until we reach glory. And I pray that not one would be left behind. We ask that you would draw many to faith in Christ this morning if they have never professed to follow Christ and Christ alone, that you would give them, that you would redeem them today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I've got three points, three points. God's grace in remembrance is point one. God's grace in remembrance, point one. Point two will be God's greatness in redemption. So if you're taking notes, I encourage you to take notes. God's greatness in redemption. And then number three, God's guidance into glory. God's guidance into glory. That's number three. So number one, God's grace in remembrance. Certain events you'll find in your life, this is true of all of us, certain events are are actually very pleasant to remember, are they not? Certain events you want to, like, burn into your mind to never forget. Like, maybe the birth of your first child, second child, third child, any child. You want to remember that, that day that they were born. And a funny thing actually happens with that is it's all a haze. It all is like a haze. Like, I don't know, it's like one day you weren't here and now you're here. Right? As you're so tired in that season. But you want to remember your, your birth of a child. Uh, that's an important event. Your wedding day. And men, preferably, you'll remember the anniversary of that wedding day as well, or you'll find great curses follow for failing to remember. Maybe your first house, the first car. Man, my first car, I remember my first car. I, I think it's a, a you know, if, if, you're, if you have young children, I encourage you, don't get them a nice car to begin with. Get them just a, a junk Maui Cruiser. And all the young people are like, no! Please, no, stop, Pastor, right? Um, You didn't pay me enough before. (laughs) Get them a junk car. To begin with, my first truck was a 1985 Chevy S10. When they still made them metal, the bodies were metal, and, and that sheet metal, not kind of the... Plasticky type stuff today. It was just a, a wonderful vehicle. It blew up on me like three times. Uh, I just, I, I have such fond memories. There was this big bridge in Savannah, Georgia, Thunderbolt Bridge, and, and I had to cross over it to get to school, and it was very, very steep. And I just remember like every day wondering, Am I gonna make it today? A- a- and I would accelerate on the flat to, to hit the hill with some speed um, because it would bog down. It was just a wonderful thing. You wanna remember some of these first these important pleasant uh, events in your life. And you say, Pastor, is that your pleasant event? Say, it is what it is, all right? Uh, Some are pleasant. We want to remember those. Some events aren't pleasant to remember, but necessary to remember. Some events are not enjoyable to recall, but necessary due to their defining nature or impact they've had on your life or nation. For instance, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, we, we don't ever want to forget what happened at Pearl Harbor. 9-11, never forget. We don't want to forget what happened. Is it because these are pleasant memories that we want to remember them? No, it's because they are defining memories. They were so impactful into the history of who we are even today and how we live, even today that we can drive down this highway, Mokalele to Kihei, and you can still see remnants of that time and bunkers that were built, and, and it was very defining on us. So it's not pleasant, but it is necessary to remember. And then there's, of course, certain events that we all wish we could forget. We all wish not only that we could forget them but maybe even that we could undo them that we could go back in time and and undo them but nevertheless for one reason or another they are burned into our memories and as we think about our memories we have to be mindful that our capacity as creatures, as human beings, our ability to recall information is actually a God-given capacity. It, it is one of the gifts of God. He, he created us with the capacity to remember and recall information. Some have even said that one of the things that humans do that's different from any other creature on the planet is that we have history. We keep history. We recall. We remember We record history. This is a God-given ability. in, In the beginning, it was surely meant to be a blessing and a gift, as we recall God's kindness, his greatness, because unlike God, we are not omnipresent. We are bound by time and space, who God is infinite and eternal. He is outside of time, but yet we are bound in our creatureliness to time And so our ability to remember and recall is a gift and a blessing. In fact, it's a very unique form of suffering, a very intense, as it progresses, form of suffering to be unable to recall and remember things. It can be very frustrating in the beginning. Every new parent will, will deal with this, uh, what we call mommy brain or daddy brain. You, you forget basic things, and you're like, where did I put this? I don't even know where, where anything is anymore. And, and then as you progress, I'm told, it gets worse as you get older. Is this true? Oh, no. I'm in for suffering. <laughs> right? but, but in its severe forms, Alzheimer's. The the breaking down of the mind and the inability to recall even basic information can be crippling and devastating to families. And so we actually take greatly for granted this ability to remember. So post-fall, after Genesis chapter three, our abilities, our minds, like everything else, are tainted by the fall, by the effects of the fall, by sin. But here in its capacity, as God designed it, it is a blessing and a mercy and a grace that God asks Israel to remember this defining moment for all generations. Chapter 13, verse 3 says this, remember, right? Sorry, remember this day. In which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by the strong hand, a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. And you shall tell your son on that day, verse 8, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. He wants them to remember He wants them to remember the bitterness of their slavery. He wants them to remember their hopeless position. He wants them to remember his mighty power with a strong hand. We in our household, we try and like take, everything to, uh, as much as we can, to teach our children about God. And and so the trash man has been a recurring uh, reminder every Tuesday and every Friday, if I can remember, to get the trash can out to the curb uh, of God and his greatness. And and what does a trash man do? He comes and he dumps the trash into the back. And we tell Titus, uh, we tell him, that's like Jesus. He takes away your sin never to be seen again. Right? Works, right? Takes away your trash Where's it go? I don't know. I don't care. Right? That's Jesus. Jesus is like the trash man. You take it down there, and he takes your sin and he takes it away, never to see it again. And, and we've, we've added on to this over the years. And so uh, this week, my wife says, and, and he does it with a. Str- <laughs> with a strong arm, right? The trash bin, right? The strong arm, right? Because we're talking about Egypt. So with a strong arm, the Lord takes away your sin. And so we add to this. And this isn't for the purpose of just merely remembering. As in this, you know, this nostalgic, like, you know, you look at your letter jacket, like, I used to be able to throw that football over that mountain, You know, I just want to remember. No, 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 no. this isn't for a nostalgic type of remembrance. Rather, it has the purpose, the express intent of stirring their hearts, not just for past acts of obedience or of grace, but stirring their hearts presently in that moment for faith-driven obedience in that moment. That's exactly what he says, verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. Why? Here it is right here. So that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Present, ongoing, continuous action. So that when you come into the land of Canaan, don't just remember this and say, oh, that was nice. No, but remember how I brought you out of slavery so that God's word may be in your mouth. And it doesn't just mean so you can kind of remember it and have it there. The connotation is that you would be actively obeying him in the present, in your new home. So it's a past remembrance with a present desire to stir faith-driven obedience every time. They partook of this unleavened bread, this feast of unleavened bread. Each time they did it annually, it was to remind them of their deliverance. It was to remind them of the grace that had been shown to them in their redemption. And it was a type of renewing of their commitment to the Lord to follow Yahweh who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, We, of course, do not live in Exodus 13, do we? We do not live in Exodus 13. We live in Acts 29, the continuation of the history of the church. Now, our deliverance, by comparison, is far greater, far superior than anything Moses ever did. Our deliverance in Christ is infinitely by comparison. It would be like holding a candle to the sun. It is no comparison. Our deliverance is so great so that whereas they remembered it once a year, we remember it every Sunday. When we gather, we are reminded that we don't meet on the Sabbath. We meet on what? The Lord's Day. It is the Lord's Day. Why is it the Lord's Day? Because it is the day that Christ rose from the dead. And he conquered the grave and conquered our sin and and sealed our salvation. And so we remember it not once a year, but every Sunday. Even all of history recognizes this fact that this is the Lord's day. It is the first day of the week set apart for worship, not the Sabbath days, which is Saturday, but set apart for worship for the first day to the Lord. See, you think tomorrow is the beginning of your week. Your week actually begins today as a first fruit, if you will, of your time to the Lord. See, later Israel or the Jewish people would start to literally take this literally. <laughs> And they would put scriptures and they would put them uh, in little tassels on their clothes. And so they would have it hanging on their their clothes and they would literally bind it on like a hat type of thing because it says you'll bind it on your forehead and and it'll be like frontlets between your eyes. And and that actually misses the point. The point was that they were to keep God's word, God's actions in their hearts. In their heart. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my part that I might not sin against you. So there's a reason why we have Pastor Jim do the fighter verses. Every week, there's a reason why we started that a year ago, the congregational memory, so that we could bind God's Word as a corporate body of Christ on our hearts, so that we might corporately battle sin and bear one another's burdens. Now, the first thing everybody, almost everybody, says to me is, Pastor Randy, I can't memorize. I I can't memorize Scripture. I'm I'm not a... Person that, that's just not my gifting, I can't memorize anything. What I'd like to say and challenge you to think about this. If I offered you a thousand dollars for every verse you memorized and paid you every Sunday you came, do you think you would all of a sudden find that memory just has new life in it? Every script a miracle. Even Every scripture you memorize You show up If it's one verse, two verses, ten verses You get a thousand bucks That would be a benevolence ministry Right? Do you think you would find The ability to remember God's word? You all know that's the case See, we found something with my children. Uh, they're, they're entering their, uh, their, their sin is starting to show, uh, and they'll often say, "I, I can't do this. I, I, I can't get up and pick up my toys. I'm too tired." Oh, I can't walk to bed, daddy, I'm too tired." And what we have found is uh, we can always test their actual is this are they making an excuse or is this really a, a limitation whenever we 're asking them because if I offer them a jelly bean son if you pick up your toys as fast as you can i 'm going to give you a jelly bean suddenly that dude's running everywhere just. Right, right, first one, right, whatever. And, and all of a sudden, uh, if, if you do this, you'll get a jelly bean. If you sit through church and you do really well, I'm going to give you a jelly bean. And all of a sudden, both Titus and Scarlett are both like angels in church. And you're like, whoa. And people say, people say, my child can't sit through church. No, 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 no. They can. They can. It's just... They're many times unwilling to sit through church. And so what we have found is, that, and what Brent and I were talking about, is we're the exact same way. We say, I can't memorize scripture. I can't make time for the word of God in prayer. I'm too busy. I've got too much work. I've got too much this. I've got to do X, Y, Z. I can't. But the really, the issue, the heart of the matter is I won't. I don't have incentive enough to do so. orchestrate my life. And so I would challenge you, you can, beloved. That's why you have a mind. That's why you have strength. That's why you have all of the God-given abilities that God has blessed you with, not so that you can spend it on things that will perish, but so that you may spend it in pursuing God and holiness and godliness and ultimately happiness, true joy, true joy. God is so kind. He is so kind to require their remembrance of this defining event. God is gracious, and he asks us to do the same. He asks us to meditate on our joy. Remember, as we did on the Lord's Supper, remember how I brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Number two, number two, that's God's grace, in remembrance. Number two, God's greatness in redemption. Verse two starts out, almost the whole, the chapter almost opens up, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. That's an interesting statement because doesn't Psalm 50 say, for every beast of the forest is mine? The cattle on a thousand hills, all the birds of the air, all everything that moves in the field, all of it, he says, is mine. He even goes on to say, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Why? Because the world and its fullness are mine, says the Lord. So Paul would later ask, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer, nothing. Nothing. Everything you have, you've been given by God. So isn't everything belong to God? That's an important concept to get right off the bat. As a believer, uh, as somebody who's going to follow God or what Christianity teaches, nothing is yours. Nothing. Not your children, not your jobs, not your houses, not your pensions, not your retirement plans, not your future, not your own very life is yours. Nothing is yours. It is all God's. And so, What this was is this act of offering the firstborn to God was an act of faith. It was an act of faith and a recognition that God owns everything, and I'm dependent on him for all of it. It helps to understand what this firstborn idea was. And you can imagine, without much even training or study, if you're a farmer and you're living in an agrarian society and you're, you're doing crops and all these types of things, uh, that you're waiting very eagerly for this crop to bear fruit and you're waiting very eagerly for this cattle or this sheep or this pig or this donkey or this whatever to produce more offspring so you can have more and, and, and grow. And, and then now I have to wait all this time and the first one isn't even mine. How many, how, what if there's only two? You see, this is an act of faith. This is very important. The firstborn, especially the firstborn son, was the hope and future of the family. The firstborn son was preeminent in the family, he got the double portion of the inheritance. He was considered the strength of his father. He often was considered a down payment from God of more to come. More children, that is. So the firstborn in a family in this society was very, very important. And God, in effect, says by laying hold of the firstborn, saying the firstborn is mine, he's saying, in effect, your future hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your family itself is mine. And by offering them back to the Lord, by redeeming them, it is a recognition of that fact. That they would remember forever, my strength is in the Lord. My future is in the Lord. My financial prosperity is in the Lord. All of these things work to help them remember, I am the Lord's. Were it not for him, I would be where? In Egypt, a slave. But more is happening here for sure. More is happening here. It's not just about what God wants us to do, is it? It's not just about what God wants us to do. Jesus comes on the scene in the book of John, and he's debating with the Pharisees and Sadducees. You guys remember this? We talk about this all the time. He's debating with them, going back and forth. And he says, and they're claiming their authority on Moses. And he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. And so one of my favorite things that we've been doing is as we come to Exodus and Genesis is that we look, where did Moses write of Jesus? Because Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. Here we go. There's more happening here than meets the eye. This is not merely about what God would have them to do. See, in their society, redemption was the act of the patriarch the father of the household, the head of the household. So if they had a firstborn of a clean animal, then they were to redeem it by substituting a lamb. Every firstborn redeemed for the substitution of a lamb. If it was a donkey or an unclean animal, they could substitute a lamb, a clean animal, for an unclean animal, or they could break its neck and kill it. Or if it was a son, a firstborn of the womb, They could redeem it, not by killing it, but by paying a price, a redemption price that we later find out is five shekels. So whether you're poor or rich, the price is the same. The firstborn of your children, you shall redeem. The redemption price, five shekels, or they die, or they die. So more is happening here. This redemption, the responsibility of redemption, was the act of the patriarch. And the patriarch would put his own resources, his own finances, if you will, on the line to ransom a family member. And the redemption was the means by which the family member was restored to peace, safety, and security within the family unit. And this was the job of the patriarch to fulfill, the father Now, this story is whose story? This is God's story. This is how God has worked in history to save his people, which means the message isn't ultimately about us. It's ultimately about who? God. So the message here paints and points to Christ. It paints a backdrop for us to comprehend what God has done on our behalf. You see that? What happens? Yahweh, Yahweh assumes the position of patriarch accepts the responsibility to redeem his lost family members at great cost to himself. He agrees to pay whatever price is necessary for the redemption of his people, even that of his own firstborn son. And what is his purpose? To restore his lost family members to the household of God so that they once again may be with him and he with them. So our God, our Father, has redeemed us his lost children, and bought us back and brought us back by sending his first son, his only begotten son, his heir to the throne, Jesus, to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark ten forty-five. I did not come to be served, but to serve, he says, and to give my life as a ransom for many. And see, whereas God would allow his people to spare their sons by paying five five shekels to avoid the death, he would not do the same for his own son. Romans 8 says he would not spare his own son, but rather he gave him up for us all. Is this not the great truth of John 3.16? For God so loved, in this way, God loved the world. For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, so that whosoever believes in him will not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Is that not the great truth that we sing about over and over, that God gave his son, so that we who were once, you who were once alienated and cut off and without hope in slavery to sin, that you might be adopted as sons and daughters of God by faith, and that by faith the inheritance of Christ becomes our inheritance. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Praise God for this great redemption. Beloved, see the great love of God with which you have been redeemed. 1 Peter 1 says this. One seventeen. If you're a believer here, listen to this. And if you call on him as father, do you call on him as father? Is he your father? If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were what? Ransomed. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. Amen. You were purchased, beloved. So Paul says, you are not your own in First Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Some of you forget that you have been bought with a price. Some of you forget that you have been redeemed. And when we forget that we've been redeemed, we fall back into old patterns and habits of sin, the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. And so we fail to glorify God in our bodies. But he says, you've been bought with a price, so glorify God. Number three. So that's God's great work in redemption, God's greatness in redemption. Number three, God's guidance into glory. God's guidance into glory. What a fantastic passage this is! So they are now drawn out of Egypt. They are, or rather, kicked out of Egypt finally, and they are now in the wilderness. And it says that God didn't lead them by the way that was land of the Philistines. So, there's the shortest distance would have been to go through the land of the Philistines, but God didn't lead them that way. Instead, He led them this long way through the wilderness, and He did something phenomenal, spectacular, miraculous, even. And He says. The, that he led them, the Lord went before them, verse 21, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they may travel by day and by night. And that this pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire did not depart from before the people. Now this is amazing because we take for granted that we can travel around in the nighttime. We have headlights on our cars, street lamps, reflective uh, reflectors everywhere. I even see reflectors on trees that are like 30 feet off of the roadway. And I'm like, why would there be a reflector on the tree? Because some people will find that tree if that reflector's not there, right? So that's what my time has taught me. But we take for granted that we can travel in the nighttime. How miraculous that they could travel both day and night because the Lord appeared as a pillar of fire to them. Interesting also that in John 7 and 8 remember we find Jesus crying out during a feast I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not what walk in darkness will not walk in darkness amazing Jesus saying that that was him that was me So God led them, and what we find in this, we find a number of things. What do we find? We find, first, how we note that that was not the most straightest, direct, shortest, most logical route. Verse 17, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But he led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. This is an important point for us. It's important. Why is it important? Because we find the shortest way is not always the best way. The shortest way is not always the best way. The easiest way is not always the right way. And the most logical way is not always God's way. Sometimes, actually all the time, we want the straightest, shortest road to our destination, right? Point A to point B, get me there. I don't want to have to do these detour things. I just want to get there. But we often ask God for things we can't yet handle. We think we can, but we maybe he knows more about us than we know about ourselves. I make breakfast in the morning for my children in Titus Comes in one morning. I'm making pancakes, and he says, "Dad, can I help you make pancakes?" And I say, "No. Why?" It's a question. I, know, I already know that's coming, right? Why can't I help you make pancakes? Well, because son, there's fire. It's hot and it's dangerous. He's like, "I'll be careful." I was like, "Uh, I want to be that cool dad that like helps and you know does it. You know, lets him do stuff." So I was like, "Okay, cool." You win. Let's do it. Get your stool. Come on over and help me make pancakes. So his job was to take chocolate chips, uh, chocolate chip pancakes. You can't just make a four-year-old regular pancakes, right? So he gets chocolate chip pancakes. So your job is to drizzle the chocolate chips in there whenever I pour the batter. So uh, he's doing it. And at first, the first one he does good. But he starts to get careless, confident, not pay attention. I got this. He goes, okay, hey, son, drop them in. What's he do? The the pan is got a rim on it. He drops it in, touches his arm to the pan. You guys can guess what happens, screaming, Ah Uh, now we're teaching a lesson in burns. All right? The Lord is a consuming fire, son. (laughs) Right right? Don't no, it's I knew something about him that he didn't know about himself. I told him, no, he persisted. I'm ready, Daddy. He wasn't ready, and now he can tell you about first, second, third degree burns. Often we ask God for things we aren't ready for yet. If you've prayed for something that seems good for us, and you haven't seen the answer to that prayer, it may be the Lord knows something that you don't about yourself. It may be that God knows we're asking for something that we're not ready for, that will hurt us. Or it may be that there are trials that we are unable to handle at that time, that it will bring. Does not the Lord know our frame? Isaiah says and considers that we are dust. He knows our frame. God's way wasn't the shortest way, but it was the best way. He remembers his people. He caters to the needs of the people. Had they seen war at that time, they would have wanted to go back to Egypt. Was there going to be war in Israel's history in their future? Absolutely. Very near there would be war. But they weren't ready for it yet. And so God led them the long way. Truly, God caters to the need of his people However, their unbelief is so so present at all times, we also have to see this, this principle of unbelief. We all have it. It's deeply rooted in our old natures, in our hearts, that even the most greatest saints and the godliest men have yielded to the influence under severe trials of unbelief. One pastor says it's not uncommon for truly upright, godly people to doubt at times whether they shall ever get to Canaan safely. So sometimes we make an environment where it's not okay to be a little bit afraid, to doubt the Lord as if we're going to shun you now because you're struggling. No, 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 no. We want to come alongside you and bear that burden and encourage you. God will get us to glory one way or the other. We see a few things about the cloud and the fire. That's about how the Lord leads us around in different ways. The shortest way is not always God's way. What seems to make sense to you, you may be missing something, that had you God's view, you would do the same thing. Let's look at the cloud and the fire. These demonstrate God's patience and faithfulness, his presence and his kindness. So God's patience and faithfulness are demonstrated in the cloud and the fire. How so? Notice what it says. Verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, what? Did not depart. From before the people did not depart from before the people now if you know any any little background at all about israel's wilderness wandering you know you know that they were rebelling were complaining were grumbling were faithless were worshiping golden calves were doing all of these things the whole time they were a very obstinate stubborn, stiff-necked people, God says. He even thought about wiping them out at one point. But yet, it says, the cloud and the fire did not depart from before the Lord, or from before the people. He stayed with them day and night never leaving them or forsaking them. Even amidst their rebellion, amidst their complaining, amidst their grumbling, he began a good work, and he would complete the good work. He is the same God who says, not one of my sheep will be lost. Not one of them. He is faithful to his covenant, and he is extremely patient. Let me ask you this. How are you with patience with those under your watch and care? Whether it be your wife or your children or your employees? How are you with those underneath your care? Note the loving kindness of God. He is patient, very patient, even under provocation. We see the presence of God leading and guiding them wherever they should go, day and night. Whenever it stopped, they stopped. Whenever it moved, they moved and God would lead and guide them. He is always present with his people. The God who has said, "I will never leave you nor forsake you" is the same God today who says, "I will be with you to the ends of the age." God is always present with his people, and in 3 we see God's kindness. Just the sheer kindness of God. They're in the wilderness, in the desert. Do you think a big giant cloud in the desert would be something that you would count a blessing? If you just want to go stand outside in a field in Kahului on a sunny day, you'll see. You would love a big giant cloud to block out the rays of the sun. Even God's kindness to shield them from the heat of the sun in the daytime and to guide them. God is just infinitely kind. See how kind and generous your God is to you. And even today, God shields us greatly from the intensity of our own sin. From the intensity of our own failings, our own iniquities, rarely do we ever feel the full weight and consequences of our sin in this wilderness world, do we? Praise God. God is exceedingly kind. Now, we no longer have a cloud. We no longer have fire. We have something better. We have the direct presence of Jesus through the Spirit leading and directing us at all times as we walk in the Spirit. Now, part of the the work of the Holy Spirit, his glorious work, is to guide us into all truth, John 14 says. It's like the simple proverb, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Is this not one of your favorites? You could probably quote it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him in what? He will direct your path you will make your way straight. Is this not the simple meaning that we have by faith given to us by God? Now, we have to be careful here. I'm not going to spend too long, but we don't say God guides us and directs us through visions, dreams, or extra revelation or voices in our head. He guides us how? By His Word and His Spirit. By His Word and His Spirit. Beloved, if your current situation is painful, So whatever your situation in life is, your lot right now, if your current situation is painful or not what you expected, it would be a grave mistake to conclude that God has forsaken you. A grave mistake. A gross error to think that God has forsaken you because things are difficult. Rather, instead, I would encourage you to commit yourselves to the Lord He will accomplish what is ultimately best for you. Psalms 37.5 Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. Fix your gaze on Christ. And I pray that you will leave this morning, today, with a renewed faith to follow the Lord, even when He seems to be leading you in a very crooked path. Trust in Him, and He will act on your behalf. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is, uh, on one hand, very complex, and on the other hand, very simple and profound, that you are with your people, you are redeeming your people, and you will guide us into glory. So we thank you for these precious and great promises through Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.